Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series designed for healthcare leaders who are looking for fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and inspiration in their daily effort to advance value-based care, patient-centered care, and consumer-oriented healthcare. The topic today is a significant and large one. It is the topic of population health. This is a area, an issue which is, has been and continues to consume CMS at the federal level, uh, state governments, local municipalities, payers and insurance companies, employers, provider groups, and uh, it, is, uh, it is the topic of, uh, of the decade. It's considered the platform or highway that will uh, allow us to drive towards uh, value-based care. And like most topics of this size and this scope, uh, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's using the words. Uh, there are departments and divisions and conferences and symposiums and, symposiums and lectures uh, and experts. And uh, the bigger it gets, perhaps the less certain we are and less clear we are about it. So uh, our hope today and my hope today is that our uh, expert guest will shed uh, some light and shed some perspective. This will be one of many uh, uh, series that uh, or shows that uh, we'll uh, hold to discuss uh, this particular issue of population health and what it means and, and getting a different perspective on it. So our guest today is Bob Matthews. I've had the great pleasure of hearing uh, Bob speak at uh, most recently at this past spring at the American Medical Group Association conference, and he spoke on the topic of population health. And from my perspective, it was the best talk I heard at that conference. Uh, he really blew me away, and I think uh, the rest of the audience felt the same way. He has uh, a very down-to-earth, practical um, way of looking at population health. He is clearly uh, very, very experienced in this domain, breaks it down really well, explains it in simple terms, and I think has a real handle on some of the truth behind uh, a lot of what is happening in population health today. Bob, I'm going to let you uh, share with the audience a little bit about your background before we uh, dive into uh, some of the questions and conversation. Great, Zev. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So I have been working since uh, 1990 to, in various uh, forms and fashions, to transfer the responsibility to manage the quality and the cost of care from insurance companies to medical groups and health systems. Um, I did that work for many years as a consultant, and I was lucky enough to get uh, some very interesting projects where uh, forward-thinking health plan CEOs wanted to push the responsibility out to the physicians in the community. Of course, this was back when many of the docs in uh, the Midwest were in mom-and-pop practices. Um, later, as uh, the Clinton care effort blew up and the uh, other developments occurred, I formed a company that managed or manages uh, larger medical groups. Um, we um, felt that we needed to understand every uh, fiber and sinew inside of the medical group uh, to be uh, effective leaders in change. 
So over time, uh, we developed a, a very substantial budget uh, that we spend in innovation inside the medical groups that we manage. And we take some of our innovation products out to other medical groups. Of today, about 175 groups all over the country use one or another of the, uh, the processes that we've innovated. So we're, we're very much uh, aware of and involved in the struggle that groups today have, that is to survive in a declining real revenue volume in environment while at the same time shifting to a value-based uh, reimbursement model. Uh, and by the way, that's a process that's pretty darn sloppy. So that's, that's the high-level overview of what I've been doing. Great. Bob, so let's, let's jump into it. Um, first question, how would you define population health? So it is not a favorite um, phrase or saying of mine. I, I recognize that it's extremely popular right now. Um, and the problem I have with it is that it tends to mean um, something different to all sorts of different people. Um, but I think in your cue uh, up for this discussion, you did it right. So if you're going to pay health systems and medical groups based on some combination of quality and cost, one of the fundamental goals of that payment model and one of the things that changes for groups and, and health systems is the fact that you're not just paying them for the people who happen to show up for care. You're paying them for a population of people. And so to me, population health means uh, the conscious awares inside a health delivery system that all of the health of all of the population that they, that has been assigned or that has chosen them is uh, is fair game. They need to be accountable or responsible, however you want to, for um, managing or successfully uh, caring for all the people. That's the people who come in and the people who don't come in. Um, that's the people who agree to take their medicines and the people who don't. Um, and if you take that view and you realize that hopefully in the future a very substantial portion of our income is going to be riding on that, you get pretty darn um, focused on ways to engage people to be healthier or Bobby more successful. Bobby lost you there for a second. Bob, if you uh, can hear me, your mic may, your mic might have uh, turned itself off. Um, all right. Can you right, hear me? You yeah, you're good. You're good. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. That's okay. It might have been that I was just abrupt in my uh, coming to a, to the end of my sentence or thought. Ah. So, um, so Bob, I I completely agree with that definition and. From a clinical perspective and a healthcare perspective, uh, provider side perspective, that that's a uh, I, I, you know it, it, it's what we would all want for ourselves, our families, our community. Uh, someone who's uh, thinking about us from a healthcare perspective, clinical perspective, not just if we show up or when we show up, but uh, before we show up, and especially if we don't show up. 
Uh, it really, to me, uh, if I reframe or rephrase what you were saying, it, it, it's, uh, it's really about preventive health taken to a, a whole different level and really thinking about the large community and larger population rather than just the folks who do uh, have the wherewithal to, to show up and continue to, to maintain a relationship with their providers. So to, to me, that, that's, you know, it's just a, a great way to define it. So, and, and that's new and different, actually, from the way healthcare has been practiced in the past, uh, because in the past, I, I don't believe that anyone was really looking at the population as a population and, and looking for the people who were falling through the cracks or who weren't making it in or weren't making it back. Um, et cetera. So what, so that's one advantage of population health. And again, I appreciate the definition. What other problems or challenges or inadequacies in our current healthcare system is population health solving for? What's, what's the problem today that we actually need this thing, whether we call it population health or a, another definition that gets us towards a, a more value-based healthcare system? So in my first remarks and in your summary, I, I put a lot of emphasis on the question as to whether the patients come in or don't come in, and that's absolutely a, an area of focus. The second part of that is that um, we, even if they all, if they come in, we have operated and we continue in the largest part to operate a health delivery system where there is no measure of quality. Um, recently, in the last couple, several years, we, you know, people that are in ACOs have had to put in their quality measures and all of that. But if you take uh, blood pressure, uh, which is by far the most frequent uh, uh, diagnosis in our country for chronic disease, um, you know, our national success rate today in 2017 is about 50%. If you go out there today and you look at diabetics, uh, and you measure success by the simultaneous achievement of a blood pressure outcome, an LDL outcome, and an A1C outcome, our national average is about 10% success. And so, A, we were not worried about the people who fell off our radar screen, and B, even if they came in, we as a system did not pursue... Uh, and, and largely to this date, have yet not pursued methods that could get those awful uh, outcome results improved. And so there are people who are doing that, um, typically uh, those that are in um, Medicare Advantage or other value contracts or ACOs um, and who have to post their quality scores. But the threshold is, the bar is pretty low because as a country, we're not doing all that well with that. So population health is A, being worried about whether people come in or don't and, and preferably come into the office, not the emergency room. And B, whether they come in or not, being worried about whether we help to get the blood pressure below 140 and the A1C below 7 for younger people and 8 for older and uh, you can go on down the, the the list. So if you look at our system, uh, national system today, we're we're really bad at uh, achieving these uh, these outcomes. Mm -hmm. And and 
you know, I think you've defined population health really well from a clinical quality perspective, which is absolutely critical to to individual patients uh, and and and, uh, and their family members because these are the outcomes that uh, really determine how uh, how well and how long you can live and uh, avoiding uh, more dire consequences of, for instance, with hypertension, with high blood pressure, uh, it's the major cause of strokes and one of the major causes of heart attacks. So this is these are really important topics. Diabetes and another one. Some folks and some experts would not have gone uh, to defining population health from a clinical care quality perspective. They would have gone the cost route for defining it and, and for even defining the, or the problem that uh, population health is solving within healthcare. What, what would you say about that? And what do you say about that? Well, to me, it's a given that a big factor in the health delivery accountability that we're going to have in the future is cost-based. And and that's because we are now operating a system that hardly anyone in our country can afford except the very wealthy. Um, You know, rates for commercial insurance are through the roof, uh, Medicare spending is through the roof, and of course, we're just at a point um, where the nation can't afford what we're doing. So I think it's a given that we're going to be accountable for cost. Um, The question then is, well, how do you get costs down? And as you were just starting to say, um, these are all directly linked. So if, if you leave blood pressure up for a long time and someone blows out their kidneys, that's $100,000 a year until they die. Conversely, if you get the blood pressure down, and you save the kidneys either forever or for a couple of years, that's $100,000 a year saved from the system. And it's not just a matter of dollar costs. I don't think anybody who's um, currently in dialysis would be thinking that that was a life-enhancing experience. Well, it's life-preserving, but you know, I don't think people preferentially like the idea of being on, a, on dialysis. And you can go on down the cost of strokes and heart attacks and emergency room visits and all of those good things. So to me, cost and quality, there, there are two parts to cost management. One is quality. The, the Commonwealth Fund says that 75% of what we spend in American healthcare is on the sequelae of the major chronic diseases. So it blows my mind when I meet someone and they talk about how they're going to save money in the system and they don't mention the chronic diseases. It's sort of like uh, Willie Horton's old, you know, they asked him, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's because we're, that's where the money is. Uh, so if you're going to save money in healthcare, it seems to me you have to successfully address the chronic diseases. Now, there are other things. There's lots of ways we waste money that we could stop, but I think it's pretty hard to have a sustained impression, a positive influence on the cost curve without doing a really good job with the top 12 or so chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to, well, why don't we, why don't we pursue that right now? Cause really what I'd love to uh, have you speak to is, is what, uh, what you've been involved with specifically uh, or, or, and what you think uh, we should be involved with or spending more time with in terms of creating solutions, uh, population health-based solutions that uh, 
attack this uh, cost issue and avoidable cost issues and avoidable utilization and uh, and quality improvement issues. So what is it that uh, you've been working on and uh, and how successful have you been so far to date? So um, I, when I see a huge challenge and let's, okay, let's change the cost structure of American healthcare. That's a huge challenge. I become overwhelmed and I, I think, well, you know, geez, what am I going to do about that? So my natural inclination is to take the problem and chop it into pieces because at some point I can work on the pieces. And if I work on the right pieces in some good order over time, the problem will become more manageable, uh, which, uh, so we began a long time ago with the simple observation that let's try to do better with the chronic diseases because at the time we had no value contracts. I could have hired care or case managers and um, put them in front of the emergency room at my local hospital and tried to dissuade people who didn't need to go in there. And it would have cost me money to place that personnel there, and all of the benefit would have gone to an insurance company, none of the benefit to us. So we decided, well, all right, if we're not getting paid anything, let's and 75% of the total cost of care is coming from these, let's start, we started with blood pressure. And we began to work um, on how are we going to fix and make blood pressure outcomes better. Early, early in that effort, uh, I love working with docs. It's all I've done for my 90% of my career. I really hate going into a meeting with a bunch of docs, throwing a question, and then just watching it get bounced around as people cite their various opinions and all that kind of stuff. So we had some meetings about what are we going to do about blood pressure, and I just couldn't see where this was going, you know, different. And, of course, it, in almost every meeting, very quickly, the conclusion of the doctors present was it's the patients. They won't take their medicines. And then they would look at me as if, well, if you would go out and make them take their medicines, then we wouldn't have a problem here. So we decided early on that we had better learn uh, the quality techniques and methodologies that other businesses use. As I'm sitting here, GE is transportation business and airplane engine business is a couple miles from my desk. And I read that in the 90s, they became very in, committed to formal methods and uh, processes for quality improvement. And one of the things that struck me was, I'll bet that they can get organized around a problem and make progress more quickly for having this methodology. So we went out and we learned how to do quality improvement, uh, what's called, we use Lean and Six Sigma. And I'm black belt trained in Six Sigma. A lot of my people are, we have full-time black belts. Don't do any management, just go day to day. So what we... And we came up, interestingly, with a different way to look at the problem than anyone else that I've run into. 
So I, I now know lots of people who worked on blood pressure. It's probably the first disease that most people kind of attack. And their answer in the main is that number one, they're going to remind the docs over and over and over and over again, ad nauseum, that the blood pressure needs to get down below 140. And they may put pop-ups in the EHR and they may get a registry and the little thing vomits on them if they don't. So that's one. Number two, um, they post everybody's scores. And the theory is that no one wants to be Dr. Last. So we're going to mote, you know, and so the underlying assumption, I guess, is they're not really trying. And if we goose them with embarrassment, then this will do it. So number three is a lot of people, especially in the last few years with PCMH and all of that, have gone out and hired additional staff. Interestingly, some of the staff are hectoring the patients and saying, you got to take your medicine. And others are hectoring the doctors saying, you got to give more medicine. But most people have some additional staff doing something and they go by different names and then in a few systems they've also begun to link the doctor's pay that's about 50 percent of the systems i think so we took a completely different view on this we said well listen if the patient isn't to goal with blood pressure there can only be three reasons number one the problem is intractable and cannot be managed. Well, that's interesting. Let's assume there's not a lot of that. Number two, we said the patient could not take his or her medicines or not participate in therapy. Yeah, that was, they all agreed that was a big problem. And number three, we decided the third possibility is we could actually have written the wrong medicine for them. So Six Sigma would tell you, well, dig around and find out. And what to cut to the chase we found was that many, many, many times the doctors don't write the right medicine. And we blame the patient for not taking it. In some cases, the patient didn't take it because it's the wrong medicine. It makes them feel like hell. So... To make a long story short, we went up to 90, today we run 93, 94, 95% success in a large population of blood pressure control. Now, we did bake in some patient engagement. So there, there, that's not to say that there wasn't a problem, but we found a very simple little way to get more and more patients engaged. And then the biggest part is we write the right meds. And... If you compare the two, I know tons of medical groups um, that have done the four-step process I mentioned. And as a group, the best of them get to 70% success. And they're whipping the docs one way and another to get to that 70%. We're at 95, and we didn't have to whip. Uh, it, it's very satisfying to our physicians that they can get these results. Bob, I just, I just got to stop because that's uh, that is uh, amazing. Just for for listeners who aren't uh, in this or steeped in this, uh, you know, as you said before, the national average is around something around thirty percent control. I think uh, it's, blood pressure is fifty. 
It's, now it used to be thirty, yeah, but it's gotten as we've screamed up to fifty in the last uh, okay. twelve years. It's up to fifty, and the best ones like that are that are flogging the physicians and really going after the patients. They're in the seventy, eighty percent range, and you've got well over ninety percent. Yes, that's that's remarkable. As a group wide average, including the centers that serve a minority. Medicare and Medicaid population hmm. in the the ninety some percent. Okay, so on top of it, it's it's it's, uh, it's not our inner city locations beat another very famous heart institution in Ohio. Suburban locations. So, Bob, how is is your approach? So, first of all, most uh, groups that use Six Sigma or Toyota Lean Production System use it much more for operational flow and efficiencies, perhaps for access, things like that. But you actually used it to uh, change the actual medical care, which is, is not typical. Is that, is that, I mean, do you, did you see that before? Or did you do something that was different in this regard? Well, I, I don't know of anybody else who has used, who has done what we're doing. I do know people... Surveying broadly the health system, I find that um, hospitals tend to be more advanced in their quality theory and management than medical groups. Um, I think that came out of the 100,000 lives and some of that and, you know, the recipes that uh, Don Berwick and his team provided to hospitals. Um, And what few groups I know that are involved in uh, sort of, as you say, Toyota, Lean, Six Sigma, et cetera, have probably done it way more on operations. Yes, um, that's true. Where, where did you, and how did you derive the, the clinical, like the, as you said, you know, we just figured we, we would make sure we gave them the right medications. I mean, I've, I've, I've uh, heard and read about other provider groups that use variation analysis. So they'll look at uh, who's performing better, uh, and again, quantitatively examine that, and they'll they'll start a conversation and figure out, okay, here's what the the, the highest performing physicians are doing. Let's let's get other people to start doing more of that same thing. So, was it that, or or how, did you have to go to evidence? No, we worked at it from the other way around. So when we were taking the Six Sigma program, it occurred to me in the first week or two. So the Six Sigma started as a manufacturing sort of approach. It is now widely used for all sorts of other things. Um, and, you know, in your when you're manufacturing, you always have a process. Material comes in a door, it goes through some sort of a line, and the product goes out another door. And so there is a certain, you know, especially when we took the course back in like 1992, um, there's a certain uh, process assumption, maybe a terrible process, but as I was sitting in there, and we had doctors in the course with us, uh, with, by the way, this was a course that took uh, 40 hours of instruction spread out over several months with projects and homework and all this, um, it occurred to me over and over again, we don't have any processes. You know, Dr. Smith doesn't do things the same way in the afternoon that he did them in the morning. Uh, we just don't have any process inside medical groups. And I don't, you know, I don't want to take you off a, a long uh, digression here, but in some ways, the way doctors were trained is the antithesis of process. 
So doctors were taught that if they had conscientiously studied and worked in, through their training and that they should be able to take vast amounts of very complicated stuff and spit out the right answer. And the idea of relying on a process was like, well, you know, this guy's a wimp or that doctor woman is a wimp, you know, that they're not a real doctor who knows all this in, in his or her head. So uh, to go back to your point, we did not um, take the view that we'd find our best doc and work backwards. That was an option. We thought about it. And there are specific applications that I think that does well. But we became interested in the idea that we would have to create a process. And we did things. We analyzed everything that could go wrong in blood pressure uh, treatment and you know, once we we listed everything we could think of, it, it was kind of, we looked at it. At the time when we were doing this, the national average was 27 or 28 percent success. And this was back in JNC7, so the, the, the goal for blood pressure was 129 for the diabetics and renal patients. So at any rate, we uh, we began to think through, and and we have continued. We just very recently finished... Uh, and we'll bring bringing out in two weeks to our group uh, a new model that is has 37 variables. When we started, we had two basic tracks. Now we have 37 variables, and we run it through a mathematical algorithm. And we do better. We I think you'll see our percent of success will push up above 95 percent. Mm -hmm. What uh, what? Couple of questions, Bob. First of all, what other conditions, chronic conditions, have you applied this approach to? Because you, you did talk about the top 10 or 12. Uh, you mentioned. So we, our goal is to do all of the top 12. We have done it for blood pressure. We've done it for lipids. We've done it for um, diabetes, which is blood pressure plus lipids plus A1Cs. By the way, we're in a national consortium of... Uh, folks that are working on the diabetic problem or challenge, and I think there's 90 or so medical groups and uh, in the nation, CDC and, and some others have found that we were number one in our outcomes. We're number one in diabetes as well. We're, I think today we run 58% of our patients get all three uh, diseases successfully to gold simultaneously. Um, we've done it for osteoporosis. We've done it for asthma. Um, we are halfway through heart failure, which is very interesting. Um, again, we're, many health systems are very concerned about readmission rates. And we, uh, in our review of data, we can see a lot of meds errors. Um, so we think, again, some of that's the patient. Uh, you get discharged from your heart failure exacerbation and you go eat an anchovy pizza. That's not the meds, but um, there are plenty of people who don't do the pizza and uh, their meds aren't right. What, what Now, how do you, in, in your model, uh, how do you account for patient engagement? Is that part of the, of the formula you work out or part of the plan or is that an addendum to it? Yeah, so we, um, we, first we try to figure out the right meds and then, 
Um, the second part is we are working um, to, to think about ways to engage patients. And obviously, you want the simplest, easiest ways possible. So, um, you know, just a little um, example from uh, blood pressure. We tell the patient that, you know, listen, you've got, uh, you've got a pump you got pipes, and you've got fluid, and it's a closed system. And if the pressure in that system gets too high, it can wear out your pump or cause it to fail. It can blow a hole in your pipes, which is really bad if it's in your head. Um, and so we don't, we don't really like this, and we don't think you would either. Most people know somebody that's had a stroke or whatever, and and then we link the medicines. We are trying to get your, you know, if you take what we can see in here is that your pipes are squeezing down and there's not enough space to get this blood out of your heart. Your heart's pumping into a small space. We've got to get this relaxed. And um, they take their meds. Yeah. You know, I love what I love about that is just the, the visual and just again, you you make it simple and straightforward and and, and you know in a way that that people can relate to and understand. What about uh, what about provider engagement? I mean, there are lots of algorithms uh, that get published, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of medical groups across the country that have been trying for years to have their physicians adopt and and maintain uh, adherence to uh, these algorithms. Uh, what what do you, what makes your approach different, or how how are you uh, deploying this uh, and, and getting physicians to adhere and follow it and, and maintain that? Well, there's a tremendous amount of change management. Um, so again, if, if you go back to the way people were trained, um, the idea was all along that there might be 10 doctors in a site and they would each have their own special recipe for blood pressure or whatever. And they even say things informally to each other like, well, I like to use this and I like to use that. Um, so we did a lot, we do a lot and we've, I'm it's funny this earlier this evening, I was meeting with some of our team. We're going out to work with a new medical group and they're not used to any of this stuff. And, um, we're going over some of our and, and and one of the things we we really do with them is explain a little bit about this idea of quality management that you know um, it, 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 when you get in an airplane um, the manufacturers of the engines or the plane for that matter have very carefully figured out what could go wrong and they've carefully engineered a way to avoid these problems and you would not like flying if they hadn't done so and the question is ultimately are you willing to do that for your patients it's very easy to get blood pressure wrong it's not hard at all would you like to go through some extra steps to be sure that we're not making all these mistakes and one of the things we've learned, by the way, is when, when you really get in there and do this, is that for lots of docs, 
um, it's not really the pharmacology and the physiology and the other parts of uh, biochemistry involved in blood pressure are not all that clear. Um, so the way we laid the process out actually, in essence, retrains them. And then the question is, are they going to use the same process over and over again, or are they going to change it willy-nilly? Because mathematically, I can show you that if you have 100 docs and they do blood pressure 100 different ways, you can't get any higher than 70% success. It's not possible. Because there's, you know, the most powerful thing I learned in my whole life is that the bell curve applies to most everything. And so, yeah, you may have doctor gets 85% success, but for every one of those, you're going to have somebody who's at 55% success. And that's why the group average is 70. For group after group after group after group. And by the way, no one really wonders, why did we all get stuck at 70? Not Why not 80? Why not 50? And these are the groups that are really putting themselves, uh, you know, a big effort. So to go back to your point, the, the difference that I make between process and algorithm is that a, an algorithm is a way to do complex, uh, manage complex data and come up with a pretty good answer. A process, which can include an algorithm but is, is larger, is a way to make sure we do the right thing every time for every patient every day. Well, that. And that's a big difference. Yeah, that is a big difference. I, I really love that. Can you say that again? So an algorithm is a way to help um, master enormous complexity in a single decision. A process is a way to make sure that we do the right thing for the every patient every day uh, in, in in the best way we know how. And, of course, an algorithm can be included as part of a process. Most people are doing what they call pathways and guidelines, and, and frankly, there aren't even that many algorithms, but there are a few. Um, those are not processes. And the centerpiece of all quality theory and practice is if you don't have a repeatable process, you don't have crap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's that's beautifully said. You know, you're as you're talking, you're you're making me think, and this is going back to my days of uh, working in the Toyota production system. That uh, that uh, perhaps, and, and tell me if you if you disagree or agree, but uh, you know, one take home message here for me is I, I'm thinking that more physicians, for sure, physician leaders. And managers, but more physicians themselves should be trained in uh, in Six Sigma or or Toyota Production System Lean to to not only just have the skills to do this, but actually to have the appreciation for why it's important. Do you uh, do you think that's overkill, or or who sh who needs to be trained uh, to to make this happen? You know, broadly in, in in healthcare across the country. Clearly, it has to be physician leaders. There's sort of two levels of expertise. Um, when I started down this road, and we thought our our company would go around and help people invent new processes, and I've come to so that's a pretty tricky business. 
Um, so there's two levels that you have to think of. One is the level of skill to invent a process, and the other is the level of skill to install and manage to a process. I think every group, every group needs um, the skill uh, around installing and managing and improving process. If groups want to go out and also invent process de novo, that's fine. It's I just, as I'm going around the country and meeting people, I don't think that that's going to happen all that often. In fact, we're more or less setting up our company as we have these processes. They've been invented. They've been proven to work. Um, and you don't have to invent them. But if somebody wants to invent their own, that's perfectly fine. And this is your work with MediSync, right? Yeah, MediSync is, you know, as I say, it manages, we manage medical groups, and at the same time, we take the things that we've invented in our, uh, in our partner groups and we bring them out to mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. What are, what are, for, for other groups that are hearing and, and physician leaders or healthcare leaders that are listening to this, uh, is this something that, um, that others can repeat uh and again it, it sounds the process you've been in is, is is a few decades and you've tons of training that went into it working with a collaboration with uh physicians and administrators and process improvement experts and a, a lot of mathematics behind your uh your your uh, chronic condition processes as you put it so what what options uh, number one what options do people have number two Given the type of outcomes you're achieving, I guess my question to you is, I know you're in a consortium, but uh, are you spreading this and are, are, are other groups adopting this so they're to achieve the kind of, uh, you know, great outcomes you're achieving in chronic conditions? Well, it's been very, very interesting. Um, we've known how to do this in chronic disease space. And by the way, there are other areas of care that we can apply this to and do apply this. But at any rate, we've been doing great outcomes, as I say, since basically 2002 or three. Um, and um, I would go around and tell people and I, I, you know, speak at conferences and we report our results and people come up and say, that's great. And I would say, um, you know, we can help you with this if you if you're interested. And they would say, no, we're not going to do that. Really? I mean, literally two, three years ago, I could not give this stuff away. Literally could not give it away. So what I think has changed is that um, the shift towards value payment has made people realize, well, we are going to have to work on this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I've... I've been told things that I think are just really uh, discouraging. A couple, three years ago, the worst I heard was a large health system who said that if we had better outcomes in diabetes and blood pressure, then we wouldn't have as many strokes or heart attacks, and that's our margin. Um, and, you know, but a, a very, <laughs> this is a classic, a physician leader who I thought was a smart and, you know, said, well, if getting my doctors to follow a process is the solution, I would rather have the problem. Yeah, well, that, yeah, I mean, and, there's uh, it's a, an expression of some frustration, right? Uh, well, and my point is, at a time when 
the entire revenue line for health systems and medical groups was based on um, volume. There were no published scores. No one knew whether you were doing well or poorly. Uh, you didn't even know. Uh, I mean, not you, but you mm -hmm. know, people in. So now you 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 see a world where um, the change in where the money is going is probably going to drive a different consciousness. And uh, as a person who purchases healthcare for employees, quite a number of employees. I would rather see, yeah, health systems that were uh, very committed to value. Um, you know, it would be good for my employees and their families and my bottom line. So I do think that the to, to circle back to the very start of our conversation, the shift towards value is changing people's motivations, perspectives, and, and, and their behaviors. And absent that shift towards value then I suspect that people might not care as much about these things. Some do. There are people who are interested because it's the right thing to do for patients. But, you know, I, I, I just to clarify what you just said when you, you know, a few moments ago when you said you, you couldn't give this away, these, these type of quality outcomes and care delivery outcomes. And, and again, the reason, as you just articulated, you, you couldn't give it away was that, uh, People weren't, you know, healthcare wasn't measuring uh, quality outcomes. Uh, they weren't uh, process outcomes or, or actual outcomes in terms of of, of good care, good quality care, uh, or even uh, you know the outcomes such as strokes or heart attacks or deaths. And so, no one had a clue if they were really doing well or not uh, from that perspective. And on top of that, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but the truth is we weren't getting paid for it. Uh, so. Uh, right. You did quality care uh, almost as, uh, you know, for those of us who've been in this, you did it because you thought it was the right thing, but the system did not support it. And so, you know, again, going back to our first, you know, question, uh, how do you define population health and value-based care? It's exactly this. It's that you measure the outcomes that matter and you pay for them uh, because that's, that's where the value is as opposed to just paying to uh, to have things done without any sense of whether it's the right thing, the right way, and delivers the the, the right outcomes that we would all want for ourselves. So, so I, I think I, you know I understand why now there's more demand for your uh, services and, and 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 products. So so what what are your what are your frustrations now? What you know what's next? Are you in this consortium? Are you gonna are you gonna share this? Are you gonna publish this? How how are we gonna get a uh, handle on this? Yeah. Sure. So uh, to, I'm going to take the first part of your question. I think that the great difficulty that we all face is the difficulty of getting um, a sure and steady and and just shift into a good value environment. Uh, and, and by that, I mean a good value payment. So um, it is crazy to go to large health systems and medical groups, or small for that matter, and say, why don't you do all this stuff, but we, we can't give you a contract based on this. So I, and when I go around the country now, I have more and more people on the delivery system side who are saying, we, okay, we've gone to the talks, we've gone to the conferences, we've heard that, you know, how do we get a contract that... Um, that is going to make it financially possible for us to make the substantial investments we need to make to switch from our old way to the new way. 
and in some stepwise. And I think actually that was the topic of the talk you heard, uh, which is one of the talks I give, which is, okay, when you go in and you want the, there's an art to getting a good value outcome contra or contract outcome. You had better be on top of your game as a health delivery system or as a medical group, um, because they're not going to treat you well unless you uh, know what you're doing. But that's the great, I think we're all ready to go forward, or not all, but many of us are ready and anxious to go forward. But if the money isn't going that way, then it gets, it's very frustrating and very, uh, very um, difficult. Well, if you're not, I think, I think, um, so. and I appreciate you, you raising this point, if you're not going to get paid to shift all your processes and resources uh, t towards delivering this kind of value-based care, it's hard to do it. I mean, you, it's very hard. Where are you going to get the the, the capital uh, to and, and and the cash to do this? So it's it is the thing is critical. Well, and the, yeah, the capital is one thing. The the revenue is the other. So I want to be paid based on achieving some quality outcomes and reducing the total cost of care for the people we take care of. And I'm pretty confident we can do that. And we are, in fact, entering into a, a, what I hope will be a, a satisfactory uh, contract with at least our largest payer. Um, but if I can't get that contract, then I can take down all kinds of capital and spend it. But how am I going to pay it back? So if I take the capital down and I spend it and then I go out and I earn, you know, and, and it's not a nickel 98. I need to earn millions of dollars based on our ability to, to bring the total cost of care down. And I think we can do that. But if you know, it requires a contract to mm -hmm. uh, pull that off. So, uh, and I apologize for the phone in the background. Uh, what is the, what is the, the next three to five years for you and what you're working on? We're, um, as part of our, larger picture so there's two parts we we believe we will be going into global cost of care contracts and that brings a whole but the heart of what we're doing is a complete and fundamental redesign of primary care and the goals of the that are to get 90 percent of our patients at the evidence-based standard for all the wellness prevention measures appropriate to their age and gender and 90 percent of our patients to an optimal outcome for each of the top 12 chronic diseases. And at the same time, have primary care make money and at the same time offload a significant portion of work from our primary care doctors who are about to fry themselves into a crisp. So if you think about a design objective, the, the four of those wellness prevention, chronic top 10, 12 chronic diseases, shift the work burden and make money. That is our goal. And there are literally hundreds of parts that have to be invented to put all this together. And we're working on that. We spend a lot of money every you know, month. Yeah, sorry for interrupting. It seems, again, I, I so applaud and hear here for, for, you know, including the sustainability of the providers and, and, uh, cause that is a, a real crisis right now in healthcare and it's not getting better. Uh, 
this seems like such an important piece of work. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that we, we should be doing this more collaboratively, more collectively. Uh, CMMI, uh, CMS should be supporting this work in, in a big way so that we can advance it and accelerate it so that it doesn't take, you know, 20 years to, to get us there, but that we could really bang this out in the next, you know, three to five years. Is that, I mean, have you thought about that? Are you frustrated with that? Or what's going on? There? Well, I, I, my goal is to get this done in the next probably four to five years. Um, but to have every year to make a remarkable, you know, a, a notable, measurable step forward. Um, I, yeah, the, you know, the health environment, CMMI, you know, and there was CMMI of, of basically uh, nine months ago, and then there's CMMI. I mean, it's not lost on many of us who are following this that lots of the top people have left CMMI because they're afraid that Dr. Price is not going to value value. Um, so the environment is pretty messy right now. Um, and it is frustrating because this is the only way to save dollars in the American health system. The, the, there was a lot of hoo-ha in the, the spring in the Congress. And the premise of that was that somehow or another we could bring the cost of care down by bringing more insurers in to uh, compete with each other, which is an interesting idea. It won't ever work. But you have to keep in mind that insurance companies are like car dealerships. It's the car companies who make a car, and the quality and the cost is baked in at the car company. The, insur the, uh, the insurers have no power to improve the quality or reduce the cost of care in 2017. They can wash the car, and they can polish the car, and they can put it on a floor with lots of lights on it, but they can't. We, it's up to us and who, who make healthcare services and provide them to do this. And uh, in, so my little sermon ends with the observation that um, we could be, this is where we ought to be focusing and this is where the solution is to be found. There are other solutions, but this yeah, is most. No, I think that's a, a great place to, uh, to uh, pause and end this, uh, this, uh, uh, particular episode of the podcast, but uh, I definitely want to have you back on. I know there's a lot more. There are many more questions I have for you. Um, I mean, you just opened up a whole uh, conversation around, uh, you know, this idea that population health and care are really, uh, and care delivery and care innovation are really intermingled. And uh, that's, that's a whole other topic to discuss. What um, and, and and you know maybe in your closing remark, and I just want to ask you, you can you can touch upon that if you'd like, or something else. But uh, to, a couple of questions. Number one, before before we, we wrap up, uh, you know, for some listeners out there, uh, and I know I'm thinking this: uh, Are you looking for collaborators? Are you looking for groups to work with you and advance and accelerate the process? We actually are, um, and you know. I've only broached this topic, frankly, with a very small number of uh, organizations. And uh, th the scope, you know, this idea that we could simultaneously do better in wellness prevention, all of the chronic diseases, 
have a more financially successful primary care and um, relieve the docs. It's <laughs> my experience is people look at you like, well, okay, they have medicines for this. You know, you're psychotic, and and maybe we are. I don't know, uh, but I believe it. We have an actual plan to get there. Um, so we are interested in collaborating, and um, it it adds you know tremendous. Um, validity to where or to our approach if it works as you said earlier in more than one just in more than one group um people who people sometimes dismiss the outcomes we achieve in the groups we manage as if that you know somehow or another this is just some bizarre fluke of uh, can't be replicated yeah. or whatever so it it sounds like it has been uh, for quite some time, and so uh, so I don't I don't see that as an issue. So uh, any any uh, you know one of the questions I I, I ask uh, the guests on on this show is any any sort of take home messages, any nuggets, and I think there you've spread a few out on the table uh, during the conversation that you would leave our listeners with. Uh, you know this this is. Uh, the purpose of, of this podcast is to, to offer fresh perspectives and new ideas and, and bold solutions. And I think you've uh, delivered on that. Um, and any message of hope and inspiration, encouragement that you could add to what you've already said? Well, I, I think just to make the point that um, one of two things is going to have to happen in American healthcare. We're either going to have to embrace value or we're going to have to stop taking care of large portions of our population. There's really no other choice. We can't afford American companies. My own company spends $24,000 a year to buy um, health benefits for a family. You know, we don't, it's not a bottomless pit. So I would say to people involved in healthcare that it is going to be value. It's my belief that it may be sloppy the way we get there, and it may be uh, problematic, and it may be, but there is no other future than that we go there. We may not, we may take a four-year hiatus and wander in the woods lost, but sooner or later, um, we have to shift towards a real value type healthcare delivery system that's capable of taking some of the, you know, trillion plus dollars of waste out of the system. We just don't have the money to keep up doing what we're doing. So if that, if you believe that, then, you know, then you can, at least you have a North star. Absolutely. And that's so critical. Well, Bob, I, I want to thank you. This has been Bob Matthews, who's uh, you've been tremendous. Uh, I know I have a, a list of questions I've been writing down as you're speaking that are still uh, that I still want to ask you. I'm I suspect the listeners are are the same. There's uh, there's a lot more to to talk about here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna offer you an invite to come back again and and uh, have a second conversation with us uh, in, in the not too distant future. But again, Bob Matthews, just really want to thank you for taking the time and for sharing your perspectives and your work with us today. And folks, this is Zev Newerth, and you've been listening to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series that is uh, devoted to healthcare leaders who are interested in advancing value-based care. 
Thank you. Be healthy. Be well.